Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Scars When Chloe came home from the hospital, Lucian could only see her eyes. The rest of her face was covered in bandages. Thick layers of gauze were taped from ear to ear, extending from her chin all the way to her hairline. Through the holes that had been cut for her to see, Lucian could see deep bruising around her eyes. He tried to be a helpful and supportive husband while she recovered. He brought her meals in bed mostly soups and protein shakes until she could eat solid food again. He helped her bathe, helped her navigate the house on the rare occasion that she left the bedroom, and he made frequent trips to the pharmacy for medical supplies and prescription refills. But for all his apparent devotion, Lucian was troubled by her. He was ashamed to think that he could be scared of his own wife, but in some intangible way, her condition made him uncomfortable. He felt as though she had crossed an invisible threshold from which she could never return. Like this change she had made to herself wasn't the simple cosmetic procedure he understood it to be, but was instead a fundamental mutation in the nature of her being. In a way, he found his revulsion to be in itself revolting. It wasn't like him to be condemnatory towards Chloe. He prided himself on his support of other people's autonomy. When he was a younger man, he had always approached dating under the assumption that the girl he was seeing had, at least once, acted in a porno. The assumption that no matter how modest she may seem, she had, at one point in her life, embraced her most debased impulse, surrendered to complete defilement. Then. Once he'd accepted her ability to reach the maxims of perversion, he would no longer struggle with the illusion of her innocence. He would never set unrealistic expectations for her loyalty or devotion. Because he would know, somewhere in the back of his mind, that she would never belong to him. For years, that kind of disassociative relationship model was effective. But when he'd met Chloe 15 years before, He'd felt something change. He saw her as somebody in whom he could trust, someone he could allow himself to be vulnerable with. In time, he did begin to feel like she belonged to him, and like he belonged to her. He'd never stood in her way, though. He'd never been critical of her desires. So why did he feel uneasy every time he was in the room with her? 
What was so atrocious about wanting to get a facelift? She was in her mid-forties, had lived an eventful life, and perhaps she even had a genetic disposition towards wrinkled skin. But what did it matter what her reasons were? She just wanted to look her best. So why couldn't he accept that? It was her decision to make, his job as her partner to support it. Something about her transformation was eating at him, though. The sensation may have been ambiguous at first, induced simply by the swollen and discolored condition of her face, by his imagining the scalpel slicing her skin, the layers of her face peeling back to expose the bone and tissue that lay beneath. But when the bandages came off and the swelling began to abate, his affliction became more distinct. He realized that it wasn't the operation itself or the injuries she'd incurred from it that bothered him. It was the small but noticeable effect it had on her physical identity. If she didn't look the same, would she still be the same person? He understood it was a ridiculous concern to have. The idea that a minor alteration to her face could supplant his entire perception of her was plainly irrational. What he and Chloe shared was more profound than simple appearances. And didn't they always say that beauty wasn't only skin deep? Or was it the other way around? Regardless, he thought, his affliction would only be temporary. In time, he expected the strange anxiety he felt around his wife's operation would fade. When she was all healed, he would see her as the same old Chloe she always had been if not a bit more youthful-looking. If anything, he should be thanking her. What kind of husband wouldn't want his wife to look a few years younger? But even when she was fully healed, his agitation remained. He would find himself staring at her when she wasn't looking, studying the subtle details of her features. He looked at the gentle curve of her chin, which seemed sharper than it used to be. He watched her lips move as she spoke, inspected the unfamiliar creases in her cheeks. He gazed at her nose, freckled and narrow, searching for something he recognized. But it wasn't there. Even her eyes, which shouldn't have been affected at all by the operation, looked different. They were still vibrant and brown, but they looked like something had gone out of them like they'd lost the distinctive glint they once held. When he wasn't around her, Lucian would close his eyes and imagine the shape of her face. He tried to organize her features into a recognizable form, to construct a composite of her face based on his memories. In his mind, he attempted to compare how she looked before the facelift to how she looked after, hoping to articulate the extent of her metamorphosis. But despite his efforts, he often struggled to imagine her clearly, her scrambled features appearing askew, or sometimes failing to materialize at all. He didn't understand how he could cease to recall the face of his own wife. They had spent nearly every day together for more than a decade. At that point in their marriage, her physical attributes should be just as familiar to him as his own. He was puzzled by his condition 
but considered the idea that he was simply disoriented. The effect of Chloe's procedure may have been subtle, but in a way she had been transformed. She had changed, and however marginal that change may have been, it was clearly enough to provoke him. On a Wednesday night, when it was late and Chloe was already asleep, he decided he would test his recollection against what he could prove factually. He went downstairs to their den and opened the bureau that held their photo albums. Getting to one knee, he hefted out a book, its cover a glossy yellow laminate, and pried it open, listening to its plastic binding creak as he did. He surveyed the pictures of he and Chloe in the early years of their relationship. Flipping from page to page, he wandered through their memories. From their wedding, to their honeymoon, to various faded vacation photos. He with thinning hair and a tacky pair of sunglasses. She in a bright sundress, toting a chic leather handbag. He studied her slanting cheeks, her narrow chin, poured over the soft bridge of her nose. As he inspected the photos, he tried to picture her face as it was now, asleep upstairs in their bed. Because there were no photos of her post-operation, she was still gaining her confidence in anticipation of that moment. He had no current reference to compare the pictures to. If he was being honest, though, even the woman in the photos looked sort of unfamiliar to him. The pictures were all more than ten years old, though. He hadn't looked through that album in years. It would make sense that they'd look at least a little unfamiliar, he thought. He was about to go through another one of the albums, this one a soft blue, when a sound emanated from the bedroom upstairs. It was a tortured-sounding moan, and upon hearing it, he closed the bureau and hustled up to the bedroom. When he arrived, he found Chloe still asleep, though apparently in the throes of a violent nightmare. Her body whipped and contorted restlessly, sheets tangling on her flailing appendages. Lucian eased himself into bed and stroked her back gently. Her body began to relax as he comforted her, but she remained asleep, her face twitching and forming horrified expressions as she faced whatever terrors inhabited her dreams. Suddenly, her mouth flew open, as if she intended to scream, but then she calmed again, and, apparently still sleeping, said, Is he gone? Her face grew pained, lips quivering. Is he gone? She said again. It's okay, Lucian cooed softly. It's just a bad dream. Chloe seemed to wake, at least partially, at the sound of his voice. One of her eyelids twitched open and then closed again. I can still feel him, she said under her breath, the panic still apparent in her voice. Lucian sat back in bed, propped up on one elbow, wondering what the words had meant. Was it just a senseless dream? Or had the words been rooted in something real? He was disquieted by the episode, and in an oblique way, he felt again like the woman he was looking at was different from the one he'd seen in the photo albums. He couldn't quantify exactly how she was different, 
but he felt a strange certainty in his hunch nonetheless. When he awoke the following morning, he decided he would get out of the house. The sun had come out, providing the first promise of spring, and the air was just warm enough to tolerate. He put on a sweater and a scarf, and, clad in running shoes that he hardly ever used, stepped out the front door and into the brisk outside air. His legs carried him down Prospect towards Fifth Street, which he followed to Bennington Park. As he walked, he thought about Chloe. She seemed to be concluding her recovery admirably. The following day, she would make her return to work. He didn't feel any less concerned about her, though. In fact, he was becoming more worried. He began noticing not only inconsistencies in her appearance, but inconsistencies in her behavior as well. She seemed unwilling to discuss any topic relating to life before the procedure. When Lucian would bring up a memory from before the operation, her face would go slack and she would stare off, or she would simply change the subject. It made him wonder if she could even recall the memory. It was obvious that she was avoiding something, but he couldn't say what exactly. It may have just been part of her obsession with self-renewal, her fixation on the new version of her. But he feared something more nefarious was going on. He was walking through the grass near the center of the park when he passed by a mother and her two children. They were girls, probably around 10 years old, and they appeared to be twins. They each had short blonde hair and wore floral dresses. Lucian was taken aback by how closely the girls resembled each other. It confounded him how two different people could appear so similar. When the girls and their mother had gone, he found himself standing there, unmoving in the middle of the grass. What if she's not the same woman? He wondered. What if... Someone else came home from the hospital. No, he asserted, but the thought remained lodged in his mind. What if she only looks like Chloe? That night, he made pasta for dinner. He scooped the noodles into two bowls and brought them both to the table, passing one to his wife. His appetite was slow to catch up with him, so he ate at a leisurely pace but Chloe showed no such restraint. She stabbed the mound of noodles with her fork and began shoveling them into her mouth. He refrained from looking at her too much while they ate. He had caught himself openly staring at her several times in the past few days, and he dreaded the idea of attempting to explain his reasons for doing so. But he still found himself scrutinizing her, searching for uncharacteristic expressions and movements. Do you feel like yourself lately? He asked her, attempting to soften his tone so the question wouldn't sound so blunt. He pushed a splotch of pesto sauce across his plate while he waited for her to answer, observing her curiously from the corner of his eye. A discreet smile climbed up her cheeks and she looked at him. I feel more like myself every day, she said. When they were finished eating, he washed the dishes. Chloe remained at the kitchen table, 
mute and motionless. He placed the bowls in the dish rack to dry and watched the excess soap slide across the surface of the sink. As the swirling, translucent suds disappeared down the drain, he thought about the words she'd spoken in her sleep the night before. Is he gone? she had said. And then, when she'd stirred briefly awake, I can still feel him. He wondered what she had been dreaming about, what the words could have meant. He felt surprisingly threatened by what she had said. Who was the he exactly? Another man? Himself? Or was it nobody? The words arising simply from a vague and nonsensical nightmare. He dried his hands and looked over his shoulder at her. She sat, staring straight ahead, expressionless, palms lying flat on the table. What had been her reasons for wanting to get the procedure done in the first place? He asked himself. Had he failed to validate her? Failed to make her feel desired? Perhaps it was something else altogether. Maybe her intentions weren't to get a facelift at all, but to execute some kind of bizarre vanishing act. How sure could he be that the woman he was living with was the same woman he married years before? He stewed on the question for the remainder of the night, unable to let it go. And the following morning, he made the admittedly paranoid decision to follow her when she left the house. He waited for her car to pull out of the garage and the door to close before climbing into his own car and heading off after her. Out on the road, he tried to keep a safe distance. Having never tailed anyone before, he struggled to determine how discreet he needed to be. For a while, it seemed that she had nothing to hide, that she was simply driving to the architecture firm where she worked. But when she passed the street the firm was located on, he began to grow suspicious. She drove a few blocks further before finding a parking spot near the beach. She stepped out of her car and walked down an alley between two luxurious beachfront houses, proceeding towards the ocean. After parking his own car a few streets away, Lucian trailed behind her. If he had been caught, he would have insisted that he was following her with the best of intentions. But deep down, he knew good intentions played no part in what he was doing. There was no integrity in his actions. He was pursuing her to prove she wasn't who she appeared to be. When he reached the end of the sidewalk, he spotted her walking through the sand towards the crashing waves. The morning sky glowed pale and orange above the ocean, and scattered clusters of people dotted the sand. While Lucian watched from behind a lifeguard tower, Chloe approached a group of people standing near the shore. The group consisted of both men and women, and they must have known Chloe, because they each greeted each other with a hug. There were six of them, in addition to Chloe, but Lucian didn't recognize any of them. He wasn't near enough to hear what they were saying, but he could see them conversing. They were cordial, but appeared solemn their expressions dour, their heads bowed. After speaking amongst themselves for a few minutes, one of them, a man with long, shaggy hair and a large pendant hanging from his neck, 
led the group to join hands and form a loose circle. Lucian watched them commence their curious ceremony, their heads lowered as they spoke, their words a mystery to anyone outside the group. They held their circular formation for some time, the tall, long-haired man seeming to recite something to them, or perhaps lead them in a chant of some kind. Were they praying? Lucian wondered. Chloe had never been religious, but maybe that was just the Chloe he knew. Maybe the real Chloe was a different person altogether. When the circle broke a few minutes later and the group appeared to say their farewells to each other, Lucian turned and retreated to his car. He caught sight of her as she came off the sand and crossed the street, her wavy blonde hair streaming behind her in the ocean breeze. She climbed into her car and started off. He waited a few seconds and then followed. After a few blocks, Chloe pulled into her work parking lot. Lucian parked on the side of the road and watched her walk inside, and then he sat in his car for a moment, not sure what to do next. He couldn't just walk inside and confront her, so he decided to go home. For the remainder of the day, he thought about what he'd seen on the beach. He fixated on the image of his wife locking hands with strangers. He didn't want to call what they had done a ritual, but he couldn't think of a more fitting description either. And the man that seemed to be leading them, the one with the long hair and the pendant necklace, was burned into his mind. He wondered if that was the man she had been dreaming about the previous night. I can still feel him, she had said. He was desperate for answers, but when Chloe came home from work later that evening, he didn't know how to approach her about it. He couldn't ask her about the group without incriminating himself for following her, so he didn't say anything at all. He listened as she talked about her day, about the trivial challenges she faced upon returning to work. Of course, she didn't mention anything about the beach, though. He went to bed that night with torturous thoughts in his head. He had strange and frenzied dreams, but when he awoke the following morning, he couldn't remember much of them. He could only recall a single image. He was in a dark room, and Chloe stood before him, her expression elusive in the dim light. Her mouth was open just enough for Lucian to see blood in it. It coated her gums and trickled from her teeth as she looked back at him from behind her crimson smile. Waking from the dream had left him breathless, but despite the uneasy feeling growing inside him, he still didn't know how to respond. He didn't know how to confront this approximation of his wife. When he was alone, he would think of piercing questions to ask her. He would devise tactics to catch her in a lie. But then when he was with her, none of the words would come. Her presence left him silent and vaguely intimidated. He resorted to a habit of subtly avoiding her. Though it made him feel ashamed and neglectful, he couldn't cross the unspoken barrier between them. Instead, he lingered around corners and at the end of hallways, scrutinizing her from afar. A few days after the incident at the beach, he had spent his afternoon working in the garden. In the evening, when he came inside, he could hear Chloe talking on the phone with someone. She sounded like she was sitting in the living room, and as he loitered for a moment on the other side of the door, 
he heard her mention his name. He paused and stood in silence, and then he heard her say something that troubled him deeply. I don't think he knows, she said bluntly to whomever she was speaking to. Soon after, though, he heard her moving around on the other side of the door, and he had to flee down the hallway, lest he be caught eavesdropping. I don't think he knows. Chloe's words repeated in his head as he slipped into his study. He sat down and poured himself a scotch, wondering what she could have been referring to. What was it he didn't know? He decided in that moment that he was overdue for a discussion with Chloe, or perhaps interrogation was a more accurate term. He needed to know what she had been hiding, but he suspected that would only be the beginning. The real secret was who she really was, and what had happened to the Chloe he used to know. In time, a plan began to take shape in his mind. He would take her to the restaurant where he proposed to her years before. It was called the Elliptical Room, and it was on the 72nd floor of the Bayview Tower downtown. When they were there, he would determine whether she recalled the significance of the place. If she couldn't remember that he had proposed there, he would know she wasn't the real Chloe. When he spoke to her later that evening, he told her that he wanted to take her out to dinner the following night. They could go somewhere nice to celebrate her recovery. It would be an inaugural night out for her new face. When she asked where they were going, he told her it was a surprise. She seemed cautiously excited, smiling but conveying a hint of skepticism with her eyes. The following evening, Chloe, dressed in a black strapless gown, and Lucian, wearing one of his finest suits, made the drive into the city while the sun set behind serrated rows of high-rise apartments and towering glass office buildings. Among the tallest buildings in the city was the Bayview Tower. Its top-floor restaurant was considered an exquisite dining experience, due not only to the rich and innovative menu, but also to the stunning views it offered. When they arrived, Lucian handed the keys off to the valet, and together he and Chloe took the long elevator ride up to the elliptical room. The restaurant was dim but had a lively atmosphere. Patrons sipped champagne by candlelight, and the dotted ceiling lights above them seemed to flicker like stars. In the corner of the room, a pianist in a tuxedo played subtle notes on a grand piano, and along one side of the restaurant, Floor-to-ceiling windows revealed the skyline of the city and the dark surface of the ocean that lay beyond it. Outside the window, a balcony stood behind steel railing, offering the most stunning views of all. It had just gotten dark when they arrived, and through the windows the lights of the city painted the placid surface of the ocean. The host greeted them with an enthusiastic smile, then placed two menus under his arm and led them to a table. They ordered a bottle of wine, and as they sat and drank and perused the menu, Lucian began to consider how exactly he would approach the discussion. Should he just come right out and ask her if she remembered being there before? Or was there a subtler way to get what he was looking for? But before he could even start his examination, she looked at him with eyes that still looked foreign, and said, How does it feel? 
How does what feel? He replied. Being back here, she said, smiling. You remember, he said. Of course I remember, she replied. Why would I forget something like that? He thought for a moment, but couldn't answer. Not honestly, at least. You seem distant lately, she told him. Did I do something? No, he said, feeling himself backtrack from his original intentions. Because you can always talk to me. You know that, right, Lucian? Her eyes were narrow and stark, the candlelight dancing in their reflective surface. Of course, he said. Of course I know that. When the waiter, a slender young man with slicked back hair, came to their table, Chloe ordered the duck confit. Lucian decided on the beef bourguignon and ordered a roasted fennel salad to start. He was unsure about how to proceed with his line of questioning. It seemed Chloe had turned the interrogation back on him. But was her confirmation that she remembered the restaurant enough to convince him she was real? If he was honest, not really. It may have provided some verification, but he still felt like she was hiding something. He could see her typing something on her phone, her hands angling the screen in just such a way as to prevent him from seeing it. Do you want to step outside for a moment? he said. Enjoy the view and some privacy? She looked up from the screen, her face displaying a touch of concern. Sure, she said tentatively. She finished typing on her phone and then stood, accepting Lucian's hand and following him through the door. Outside, a chill ocean breeze was blowing, but at seventy-two floors above the street it felt more like a harsh wind. Together, they walked up to the railing and looked over the edge, the chasm below enough to induce vertigo. So, was there something you wanted to talk about? she asked. Well. Lucian said, pushing off the railing and moving back. I guess there are some things I want to know. He stood at her back while she leaned over the railing, and she whirled around, realizing how close he was. What is it you want to know? she said. Lucian moved even closer to her, feeling her body tense as it neared the edge. I think you've been hiding something from me, he said. I want to know what it is. Why don't you just take a step back, she said, forcing a smile. I know you've been lying to me, he said. I want you to tell me the truth. I'll tell you whatever you want, she said, sounding breathless. But first I just need you to step back. He pushed even closer, hovering only inches from her uncanny face. Who are you really? he asked. He saw her look over his shoulder at something, and as he turned his head to see what it was, he felt a sharp prick in his leg. He looked down to see Chloe pulling a syringe out of his thigh, having emptied the contents into him. She put the needle back in her clutch and smiled feebly at him. He could see her mouthing the words, I'm sorry, as his vision became blurry and then went black altogether.
Lucian was strapped to a hospital bed when he awoke. Machines beeped and rang around him, and everything was bathed in a soft fluorescent light. He writhed and contorted himself, but couldn't break free of the nylon straps that fixed him to the bed. As far as he could tell, he was the only one in the room, although he couldn't see behind him, being as his mobility was limited. Hello? he called out, still feeling woozy from whatever Chloe had injected him with. He was about to call out a second time when the door to the room opened and a man in a white lab coat, presumably a doctor, walked in. He looked to be a bit older than Lucian. He had dark hair that was balding in spots and a prominent underbite that made his chin look bulky. In his hand, he held a clipboard, the contents of which he spent a moment inspecting upon entering the room. Where am I? Lucian asked him. The doctor looked at Lucian and then back at his clipboard. You're at Point McCarthy Hospital, he said. My name is Dr. Broyhill. Well, Dr. Broyhill, Lucian said, maybe you can begin by explaining why I'm strapped to this bed. The doctor looked at Lucian sympathetically. Right, he said. You see, there was concern when you came in here about self-harm and violence. So, listen, Dr. Broyhill. Lucian interrupted. Listen very carefully. I am not the one who's dangerous. It's my wife. Actually, I'm not even sure she is my wife anymore. But she's the one that caused all this. Mm-hmm, the doctor replied flatly, pressing his stethoscope against Lucian's chest and listening to him breathe. You don't believe me, Lucian replied. Dr. Broyhill hung the stethoscope over his shoulder and pulled a penlight from his chest pocket, flicking it on and inspecting each of Lucian's eyes. When he was done, he stood back from the bed and looked down at his patient solemnly. You don't recognize me, do you, Lucian? Recognize you? Where would I recognize you from? Lucian asked. From here, Dr. Broyhill told him from your previous hospitalization. My previous... Listen, Dr. Broyhill, my wife drugged me, okay? According to your wife, she administered a safe dose of your own medication when you were at risk of harming yourself or others. And you just believe her, Lucian asked. The second the words came out of his mouth, the door to the room opened, and Chloe herself walked in. She was still wearing her black dress, her makeup running below her eyes. Um, doctor, I think I'd prefer some privacy right now, he said. Dr. Broyhill raised his palms in a gesture of de-escalation. Okay, he said, I understand your concerns, but maybe we can just listen to what she has to say for now. I don't trust her, Lucian said. She's in a cult or something. A cult? Chloe said defiantly. I saw you meet with them, Lucian said, holding hands and chanting at the beach. That's a support group, Chloe said. A support group for what? Lucian replied. For grief, Chloe said. It's a support group for grief. She turned and looked at Dr. Broyhill. Like I told you, she said. He doesn't remember. Lucian, Dr. Broyhill said, 
stepping closer to the bed. Do you recall being in a car accident? No, Lucian replied, his voice faint. Six months ago, a driver ran a red light and T-boned your vehicle. You and Chloe survived with serious injuries. The injury you suffered was to your temporal lobe, and it affected your ability to recognize certain things, faces specifically. Chloe suffered a major laceration to her scalp and had to undergo reconstructive surgery. And you lost your son. My son? Lucian said. What son? Dr. Broyhill turned to Chloe. It's possible that the trauma has caused him to repress certain memories, ones that are too painful to face. He could be suffering a kind of selective amnesia. Will it come back? Chloe asked. Will he remember again? It's hard to say right now, Dr. Broyhill told her, looking across the room at Lucian. We'll have to run some tests before we can know more. Perhaps you can talk to me outside for a moment? Chloe nodded and she and the doctor left the room. When they were gone, Lucian laid back in the bed, the hospital gown bunching around his armpits. He wondered what Chloe and the doctor were talking about. He wondered if he could trust them. Hey, Jeff here. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon. It charges $3 per new episode. You also get to listen to every episode early and without any ads. Plus, you get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long, sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery thriller story. It's about a journalist who's sort of struggling to make sense of the details of a missing person's case that he's covering. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. There's a link in the show notes for this episode, as well as in the bio of the show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also follow me on social media. There's links to Instagram and Twitter in the show notes as well. And as always, thank you so much for listening, for leaving reviews and ratings. All that stuff seriously means a lot to me. I really appreciate hearing from all of you, so thank you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.